Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSB Magazine. You're listening to a new The Hacker Factory podcast with hacker maker Philip Wiley. You're about to discover what the role of a professional hacker entails, the different specializations it holds, and what it takes to learn and become one. Enjoy the conversation as Philip and guests unveil the secrets of professional hacking a mysterious, intriguing, and often misunderstood occupation. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hacker Factory Podcast. I'm your host, the hacker maker, Philip Wiley. In each episode, I have a unique guest sharing their story of how they got started in the industry. And hopefully these stories will help you, encourage you, or help you get started in the industry. And today I'm really happy to, to bring on the show uh, Rob Reagan. Uh, he was recommended from, from uh, Brittany Kemp. And so uh, it was kind of cool. Another another guest that I had is a recommendation. My last guest was a recommendation. These are always fun because a lot of my guests, I know them from social media, kind of know their background. So it's always nice, just like, you know, making friends and meeting people the first time, getting to know about them. So as you're all getting to find out about Rob, I'm getting to learn about Rob myself. So welcome to the show, Rob. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you taking time out of your your busy uh, schedule. I know a consultant's life can be very busy. Uh, that's true. I um, uh, I tend to get pulled in a lot of directions, but uh, things like this are uh, really fun, uh, and um, I'm I'm really excited that uh, it, it all the stars aligned and we're able to make some time to connect. Yeah, that's it's great to always have people that value community and helping others. And that's like, you know, uh, Britt recommended you and she's one of those people, one of your community people there, Bishop Fox. So uh, it's, it's great for you to take the time. Some people it's good when people value it and, and, and are able to give the time. I know not everyone has the time, but, you know, be able to make the time and, and prioritizing that thing to help others is a great thing. Because, you know, a lot of the goal of the podcast is to help others that want to get started in the industry. An interesting thing is people will come up and ask, you know, they're 30 or 40 or 50 years old. Am I too old to get in the industry? And, and they're not, but they just don't realize this. And when people share their stories, then it's kind of a way to encourage them and prove them that it can be done. I like to make a lot of analogies to sports because it's like breaking records. You know, when someone breaks a record in a certain distance of a run, before they did that, no one was hitting it. But it seems like once someone breaks that record, everyone's doing it all of a sudden. It just took someone proving to them it could be done. Yeah, they showed what was possible. And um, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that um, helping uh, the community, uh, first of all, I'm you know, big fan of podcasts. I think it's like a great way. Uh, I'm a much better like um, you know, listener as a way to learn um, probably than I am even with like uh, reading. Uh, so uh, I, I think this is such a good uh, venue for, for people to discover new information. And um, I think that uh, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head uh, with um, there's a lot of people that, that want to break into this industry and they're looking for guidance on how. And uh, I, I'm just happy you, you invited me and happy that Britt was able to make the introduction because uh, really 
you know, is a great way um, to to share some stories. I've been in this industry for a while now, um, but I, I always was uh, passionate about it first. I didn't I didn't even know you could do this for work or for like a career uh, back when I, I first took an interest. And um, uh, I, I think that uh, as long as someone's passionate, uh, they can um, uh, learn. It doesn't matter how old they are. It doesn't matter like whatever they think is a roadblock. If, if they're passionate enough and persistent enough, um, that, that's really all they, they need to, to do. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. You know how passion can make up for a lot of things. You know, there's people that are more gifted, you know, uh, you know, some people just pick up things are just naturally intelligent or they really studied a lot when they're younger and really developed that intelligence. But, you know, I've seen people that have been really passionate that, you know, have achieved things that you would never guess. That's not me. Uh, not not in the uh, <laughs> super intelligent <laughs> camp. Uh, yeah, I'm same with you. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely know a lot of people like that, though, and admire them and have learned a lot from them. Um, and uh, probably the smartest uh, decision I made was to try to surround myself with people like that, so hoping that they rub off on me. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least one thing you got to say about that. When, 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 you know, they tell you not to be the smartest person in the room, I don't have to try too hard to do that. So, Yeah, no, I think there's something to um, finding uh, really good mentors. And I was fortunate early on in my um, working career in, in cybersecurity to have some great mentors like uh, Caleb Saima and Billy Hoffman, um, they really uh, were kind enough to take me under their wing, uh, whether they realized it or not. Uh, <laughs> um, they they just would uh, put some things out there, and and I just tried to pick up what they were putting down and and really um, focus on it. Yeah, could you kind of uh, share with our listeners how you got started, kind of your or- origin story? Sure. How how long do we have for this podcast? Because I can give you the long version and the short version. <laughs> Let's hear the long version. I think that's good because okay. that way the, the listeners, because sometimes there's that one thing you might have skipped over that someone might have really picked up on. Yeah, sure thing. Um, so I had a f- childhood friend that um, I, I won't go into too much detail on the specifics, but we got into a lot of trouble together. <laughs> um, and he showed me uh, 2600.org. Uh, uh, which um, he specifically showed me the uh, gallery of defaced websites. And I remember thinking, oh, that's a, that is just a great prank. I gotta, I gotta learn how to do that. Um, and I remember, uh, uh, you know, finding 2600 magazine in like the local Borders bookstore where I grew up. And, uh, you know, this had just, Anyone could submit an article. Anyone, I love that it was like, it was more like a zine. It was anyone could send in to the publisher uh, some information. You know, the, this, uh, the great uh, um, hacker zines like Frack and, and 2600, I'd say, were really influential on me early on. I was uh, spending like my like allowance money and my first job money on, you know, going and, and buying those and reading those. And in the, in the back, there was a section that, um, listed every major city where there were 2,600 meetups. And um, I think I was in maybe high school um, at the time, and I was kind of begging my parents to, to go to these, even though it was down at the university's uh, student union um, uh, down in, in Pittsburgh, where I grew up. And uh, 
eventually, you know, I, I got to go and I, I think my, my coworker um, ended up uh, driving, driving me to one of these and it blew my mind that there were just, you know, like-minded people uh, that were, you know, into reading this 2600 magazine as well and learning about how to hack computers. And um, I'd always been interested in computers before that. I, I you know, um, early on was, you know, learning how to, to build computers, how to install Linux, how to, um, how to uh, uh, program, how to do network administration, system administration. Um, but then security became like the hobby on top of that. I was like, oh, I really want to learn how you can kind of manipulate these, these systems to do whatever it is that you want them to do. And that, that was just, you know, it's like unlimited possibilities. Um, so uh, I, I really got involved with the local 2600 chapter. Uh, shout out to PA2600.org. You, you know, changed my life. Um, they, uh, you know, we, we got together, we did presentations for each other. That's where I first learned how to um, uh, like manipulate uh, uh, memory, uh, go into a disassembler and uh, change like the assembly to uh, uh, affect the instructions. That's like, we learned how to like crack software. I think the uh, funny, funny story is the first software I remember cracking, um, thanks to what they taught me was actually loft crack. Um, the, the professional version at that point that if you wanted to do full brute forcing of passwords using Loftcrack, you had to buy it buy it with a license. But um, I learned at a 2600 meeting how to bypass the license uh, registration system by changing a, a JE to JNE in the <laughs> assembly. Um, uh, kind of fast forward, I met some really uh, smart people and they're some like really lifelong friends. Um, one of them, uh, you know, he was a little bit older than me and he had moved down to Atlanta for work. And I was, you know, going down there and visiting him. He um, kept trying to get me to drop out of college at that point and, uh, and just get a job. <laughs> but I decided to finish my degree. Um, I'm glad I did, but uh, it was tempting um, to, to just drop out and, and go. Um, but I um, was always like coming up with like ideas for companies uh, and um, at that point, I was working as a web developer for my university. I was writing like ASP.NET web apps mostly in C Sharp. And, uh, you know, security was still the hobby and the passion. So I, I was, I had this idea. I was like, I told my buddy, I was like, we could crawl websites automatically and find vulnerabilities in them. And he's like, oh, yeah, there's already a company here in Atlanta that does that. And I said, well, fine, I'd like to work for them. <laughs> and, uh, he gave me an introduction to get an interview um, with a company called Spy Dynamics, and um, I flew down and interviewed. Uh, it was pretty pretty intense. Uh, like uh, they asked some tough questions, but they ended up making me an offer at the end of that day, um, and I gladly accepted it. Uh, and that was how I got my first job in the security space. And specifically, I joined a team where I was. Um, my job was to write uh, vulnerable web apps to test our static analysis tool. And so we, the static analysis tool was called DevInspect, way ahead of its time. It was like a Visual Studio plugin that would automatically, uh, using IntelliSense, tell developers where they had vulnerable code and let them right-click and then add a validator or like basically fix the vulnerability. And um, unfortunately, this never really took off, but uh, I do think that it was just ahead of its time. Um, but my job, my first job there was to write uh, vulnerable web apps, specifically ASP.NET web apps, which I had a lot of experience with already just from being a web developer. And uh, I got to learn all the wrong ways to code. That was my job. I got to basically uh, study and learn all the ways to 
make a SQL injection vulnerability in the code, all the ways to uh, make a cross-site scripting vulnerability in the code, all the ways to um, uh, you know just have issues that our, our tool is supposed to help the, our customers find. Um, and, and from there, I got into uh, working with the dynamic analysis team and um, I, I worked on the crawler. I worked on the, um, the vulnerability scanner engine. I also got to work on the enterprise uh, version of the app, which was meant to take many, many of our web inspect engines and um, uh, test hundreds or thousands of applications for, for like a large enterprise. Uh, this was also ahead of its time, um, I think, because you had to uh, uh, rack a server, license that server. Uh, this was all very expensive uh, at that point. So this is uh, long ago at this point. I'm dating myself as like 15 plus years ago. Um, but uh, they also, um, when I was at Spy Dynamics, uh, gave me my first taste of penetration testing. Um, there was uh, um, a conference that the founder of the company presented at um, after HP acquired the company. Um, HP acquired the company not that long after I joined, but um, uh, basically we got challenged by the CTO of a, of a really well-known brand that, why do I need to care about application security? And um, they said, we have IDS, we have IPS, we have a top-notch network security team, but why do I need to care about application security? Like, prove it to me. Basically, the gala was thrown down. Um, and so uh, the founder of the company put myself and um, about a dozen other people in a room, in a conference room, um, for two weeks with uh, house music, Red Bull, and vodka, and said, do your worst. And uh, we sent that CTO a retirement plaque from their HR system. <laughs> and we found, uh, SQL, uh, found SQL injection to download uh, images of checks that had bank accounts and routing numbers on them. Uh, we found uh, um, ways to, uh, I, I could go on. We found a lot of very critical vulnerabilities. Basically proved why he, sh why he should care about application security. And once I got a taste for that, I realized that there was this um, job that you could have uh, called a professional penetration tester. Oh, I was hooked. Uh, I was like, wait, wait, wait. Uh, at that point, I thought I'd just be continue to be a software engineer, and I thought my career was going to be a software engineer. And I was just excited to work at a security product company. But um, I was kind of running into all the challenges you you have when you're like 23, 22, 23, and you work at like a mega corp like HP, and it's three hundred thousand people, and um, everything moves really slowly. And even if you get what they ask you to get done for the day, you um, uh, maybe you're, you're bored and you build something else and you're like, hey, I think we should put this in the product. And they say, yeah, we won't be able to release that for about 18 to 24 months. It's not in the roadmap. And it's like, oh, man, the competition's going to pass us up. <laughs> they did. <laughs> but um, uh, I, I decided uh, I was ready for a change and I wanted to try to be a professional pen tester. And... Um, Fortunately, uh, the founder of that company and my mentor there, who was the head of research, he he uh, had said, um, you know what, if you're if I had to build a team of like top five best pen testers in the world, um, this guy Vinny would be uh, on the team. Um, so you should you should talk to him. And uh, that's how I got introduced to Bishop Fox. And um, uh, I, I was employee number eight. Um, and uh, that was about 13 years ago. So uh been there ever since wow 
you don't look hardly old enough to have been <laughs> as far in your career as you as you have. But that's pretty awesome. When you mentioned when you mentioned Web Inspect, that was a familiar ter- name because my second consulting job as a pen tester, uh, the company I worked for then for our web app for our DAST, we're using Web Inspect. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, I was working on the code for for that back in the day. That's a cool story, especially the your beginnings, the twenty six hundred. Uh, meetups and stuff, you know, that for a lot of people listening, you know, they were really, those were the predominant meetups before the, the local DEF CON groups. So you didn't see very many local DEF CON groups earlier on. There's more, more of them now, but, uh, you know, here in Dallas, we've got like a 2600, uh, meetup group. Cause I remember seeing one of the advertisements in one of the 2600 magazines years ago, but that's a pretty cool, pretty cool way to start out. And, and I bet you're probably a really good CTF uh, builder too. Yeah, working building all those vulnerable apps. Oh, totally. Yeah, I've uh, participated in in some CTFs. Um, I've uh, I've helped contribute some challenges to some that that uh, um, that we've done over the years. And, and um, uh, I really think it's a, a great way to learn. I, I wish there were more CTFs uh, uh, start when I was starting out. I think that was like a they were relatively rare back then. Um, I think it's amazing now that you can find so many uh, ways to practice uh, your hacking skills um, legally, and uh, and um, in fact, even you can even get incentivized these days. I think like bug bounty is a great way to learn. I think that CTFs are a great way to learn as well. It's really good. I think some people don't give CTFs enough credit because when then you hear people. Some people that put down the OSCP certification, they'll say it's CTF-like. But one of the things that I think it's a good experience anyway is if it's CTF-like, it's more difficult than what it's like in the real world based on my observations going through the OSCP. If you saw certain things, you would probably be able to exploit that system and get in. But just because you see something doesn't necessarily mean it's vulnerable. They can take you down rabbit trails. Totally. Um, I... uh... I, I, I couldn't agree more. Actually, OSCP is probably the certification I have the most respect for um, because it is it is uh, CTF like it is. It's uh, prove it, prove that you can hack. It's not pass like a true or false test, which I feel like if anyone studies enough, they can pass one of those. Um, and it's not even a multiple choice. It is like you have to pass this challenge, which is hack these systems, and it's time limited and um you either do it or you don't and i think that's uh uh uh, one of the best ways i think to certify someone in this industry (laughs) so yeah and and for the folks listening you know rob's been at his organization for a while so he's interviewed a lot of people and and you know hiring people so this is good information here some people share their opinion sometimes but maybe their experience has been as an employee, I've you know this has helped with that. But so you're getting getting the the words right from from a hiring manager on on what you need. Yeah, we actually uh, adapted from a CTF that one of our um, one of my coworkers that he's actually uh, his name is Joe. He leads our red team now. But um, early on, he built a CTF, and we actually repurposed some of the challenges into our interview process at Bishop Fox. Uh, it, we called it Cloudbox. It's like a Dropbox-style web application that lets you upload files and download files and share files. And um, the, part of the interview challenge was here: hack, hack Cloudbox. And um, 
you know, we, depending on the seniority of the candidate, we may say like here, you can have the source code or you want to do it without source code, but uh, there's pretty, some pretty um, esoteric vulnerabilities in there. It was not just the basics and, and we really uh, um, would evaluate a candidate uh, seniority based on um, how effective they were in finding those issues uh, because it's really the only way to know. Um, you have to ask uh, someone to prove that they can do this and, and, and they have to show you. Um, uh, kind of just talking about it uh, doesn't cut it. Um, uh, depends on what you want to do in the, in the industry. There's a lot of things that you can do um, where, where you spend a lot more time talking about things. But if, if you want to be a penetration tester, you have to practice. You have to be persistent. Um, I think just not giving up and, and whatever your objective is and, and adapting and overcoming. Um, whatever challenges in front of you and asking for help and having mentors and um, all of those are, are, are more of a recipe uh, for success if, if you're uh, really passionate about getting into this uh, line of work. I really think those are, are great ways to interview people with the practical type of challenges because, you know, there's a lot of people that are really technical that don't do well under social pressure. So if they're getting drilled a bunch of questions by someone, they may get nervous. And I think as a, as a hiring manager or or interviewer that you're doing yourself an injustice and missing out on some talent when you're just basing it on that, because some people don't do well under pressure and have a hard time remembering those things. But at least when you give someone a hands-on challenge, you get a better idea what they can do. And sometimes people can't explain certain things, but they can do certain things. Totally. And I, I think that um, one of the really challenging things with uh, consulting and professional services as a form of delivering penetration testing is it is time limited. It is, you know, you, you're typically paid hourly and your customers of a penetration testing firm um, have limited budgets. It's just a reality of the way things work. And um, there will be a start date and there will be an end date and there will be a lot of goals and objectives and methodologies to follow between those two dates. Uh, and there'll be blockers and there'll be um, uh, a million other challenges sometimes, but uh, how well you roll with those punches um, probably dictates how successful you are. So, um, yeah, uh, it's not for everybody. Um, I think that uh, some people are, are, are much happier in like a security engineering role where they don't have the kind of time constraints and scope restraints and budget constraints that uh, um, may be imposed on a consultant. Uh, so, so being in-house security engineer is also like a great path to explore if you, if you don't think you'd like the pressure of a consulting, but, um, but I actually recommend it. I recommend everyone be a consultant, at least for some period of time. Uh, you don't have to do it for as long as I have if you don't like it, <laughs> but, um, it forces you to, to, um, to learn a lot. It forces you to, to manage your, manage your time, to manage expectations with others, to work in teams really well, to, optimize and um, always striving to be more consistent and efficient and transparent with everything that you're doing. Uh, and um, I, I think it's funny. I've seen like people come in uh, from other parts of the industry where they've come in from like an in-house red team or in-house security engineering role. And they've never had to like, they've never had to define a scope or like an estimation of effort. They was, Cause it was just, yeah, do this, get this done in nine months. Yeah. So like, there's not a, like a real high pressure deadline. <laughs> So um, they didn't have to make as much of a project plan. They just had to get it done by like the end of the year. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a kind of a big shift because I went in the opposite direction because I my first 
five years of pen testing was working for consulting companies and I went for, to work for a bank and what I would have had in consulting to do in a week, we had like three or four weeks to do the same thing. And the bad thing is, is if you're the person in that role that's going to go the other way, it's going to be kind of a, a wake up when you get in somewhere else. Yeah, you got a week to do that and you're used to doing it in a week. Yeah. But you kind of learn, it's almost like learning in dog years. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, <laughs> a, a dog oh, yeah. for every year, they age like seven or whatever, like equal to humans or whatever. So just the amount of time, you know, all the, I have to agree with you that I really agree with starting with consulting because all those different environments you get to touch because you don't get to see all that stuff in one environment in most cases. Yeah, I think there's, um, I, I actually want to come back to that that point because you made me think of something really interesting. Um, uh, and sorry if you can hear sirens in the background. I live in San That's Francisco, okay. so. Uh. And, and Rob's not doing anything illegal. He had permission to hack <laughs> what he's hacking into, so they're, yeah. they're, they're um, not coming after him. I swear I'm not sweating with those sirens. They're, they're probably not for me. Um, but uh, the the point you bring up about like you went the opposite way to a bank. I've heard that story like many times. Like, I guess a good friend of mine. He, he just went from, he's kind of worked for a few different like big four consulting groups, which are super high pressure. Um, and then he went to work for a very large, like, uh, like fortune 50 company. And, um, he said he is just shocked at the lack of urgency to get things done compared to what he was used to. <laughs> um, but I, I think that, uh, as, as we evolve, um, offensive uh, security testing, I really hope that we can eliminate uh, time constraints more and more from uh, our objectives. Uh, because I think real attackers, while you, while you could argue that, argue that real attackers do have budgets and deadlines and, and bosses, um, I do think it's very different than how um, consulting services and professional services have uh, applied uh, that their technique to deliver testing and uh, red teaming, penetration testing, whatever it may be. I just think there's a big disparate difference between the way that um, the 30 year old pattern of how like the Ernst and Young handbook said to scope and deliver a pen test. Uh, uh, it's not how real attackers do it. It's not at all. Um, and I think that if we want to get better at practicing for the fight that we're in, uh, whether we realize it or not in cybersecurity, we should probably spar with our attackers um, the same way that that they they are attacking us. Um, so I, I think there's there's a lot uh, we can do to evolve. Yeah, I agree. And there's so much. One of the things I see in the industry, working in, inside of companies, I'm sure you deal with that a lot as a consultant, is how people don't understand that area. I mean, I worked at a company for a while that I was red team lead, and. A lot of the people in security didn't know the difference between a vulnerability assessment, a vulnerability scan, a pen test, or a red team yep. operation. I had a director that wouldn't listen to me that he wanted a, a red team operation done against an SAP application. All right. <laughs> I, so I, the, the first thing that I'll always do when I talk to a, a prospective customer, even an existing customer, is if they ask for a red team versus a pen test versus a vuln assessment, is you have to ask that individual, what do you mean by that? Just so that we're all speaking the same language. And and often um, I get very different answers from uh, <laughs> different people. So um, even, even within our industry, our industry is so immature uh, still. Uh, I, I truly believe it is compared to other industries, uh, especially when it comes to understanding terminology and nomenclature. 
Um, and especially as we evolve what it means to, um, to perform you know, security uh, uh, testing, uh, I, I think that everyone has a bit of a, their own definition in their head. So it's really important to set expectations whenever someone tells you they want a red team uh, to ask them, what, what do you mean by that? And uh, what, are your, what are the outcomes that you expect? And uh, you'll, you'll, you'll probably get a much better uh, understanding at that point. Yeah, that's the misunderstandings of that is just amazing, you know, because that's one of the things I'll tell people and and places I work out, I try to correct people and say, you know, red teaming is adversary emulation. It's not just a pen test. It's been pen testing and just generalized. And I've seen people on some people want it to be that way because, I mean, it's it, it kind of makes it sound cooler red teaming compared to pen testing in some cases. And uh, a while back, Jason Haddix had shared on Twitter, you know, red teaming doesn't equal pen testing and all that. And someone came up that was, you know, a pen tester, a bug bounty hunter that tried to argue it was, but that's not the case. Things get generalized and I don't know where this comes from. I don't think it's so much consultancies. I think it's probably uh, people, you know, internal pen testers and companies, either that or some company comes out with some kind of product or something, not necessarily the people that really know the industry. Yeah. So for our, our yeah, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to add to that. Like, uh, yeah. words are really important. And if um, for for anyone that wants to get into this industry or is just looking to improve um, themselves in, in in this line of work, words are very important. Learning how to communicate well, learning how to write. Uh, I felt like I was a terrible writer. I still feel like I'm a terrible writer, to be perfectly honest. But I feel like I was really bad at writing when I first got into pen testing and and. Um, You'll, you'll probably also hear a lot of people say that, that the worst part of the job is writing the report, <laughs> which is true. <laughs> um, but I had some really good mentors. Actually, um, uh, Carl on our team, uh, who, who was one of my first mentors when I first joined on at Bishop Fox, um, he, he's from Scotland and, and has a, a great accent and just uh, compels people that are listening to him talk about anything, really. But especially when he starts telling you hacking stories, you're just you're really sucked in. Um, but, uh, he's also was one of the best writers I'd ever met and just really great at written communication and really precise and hinged on every word that was in my report. And there would be, it would be covered in red lines whenever uh, he would, he would QA one of my reports, and just, um, you know, making sure that I, um, really put myself in the shoes of the audience, uh, so that they could, have enough information to really understand what I was trying to, to tell them. And um, we, we also always just really hinged on demonstrating business impact in everything we did. So if we, if we found a vulnerability, that wasn't enough. Like we had to show the impact of that vulnerability to give our reader uh, of our report some sense of the priority that it deserves. And um, I really think that that's what helped uh, make um, the reputation of Bishop Fox, what it is, it is that focus on impact and that focus on uh, helping people um, have the evidence that they needed to motivate people to fix the issues that we were reporting. Um, and the best way to do that is to make uh, impact. That's good. And that's one, one of the things too, to be able to, to, you know, tell the story that way that the business folks understand because sometimes they don't understand the technical jargon. So if they they don't know what a SQL injection is or what this or that, 
is, but uh, when you show them what it could do to uh, their business and what leads to it, you know, information, people get a hold of information or, you know, business risk, money loss, then they start to understand that. And it makes it easier to justify the remediation too. Yeah. I, something um, that I had to learn how to do early on was go deliver like an executive outbrief. Uh, so we would do our, our pen test. We would um, write our report. We'd deliver the report. We'd have our main stakeholders uh, and points of contact. Uh, we typically would do like a readout session with them. But sometimes they would want us to give an executive outbrief, which was essentially a presentation to their management. And um, you're totally right. Like the management didn't know what a SQL injection was, and they frankly didn't care. And they didn't want some young looking kid to come in and tell them about what a SQL injection vulnerability is. <laughs> uh, they, all they cared about is, is what was the impact of the business. And what did they need to, to, to know about that? And what did they need to do about it to fix it, either from like a tactical perspective or a strategic perspective? And um, yeah, I, I uh, you know, that was that was challenging for me because I, I, I mean, early on, I did look pretty young walking into those rooms and um, it was pretty intimidating sometimes. And I had, you know, people challenge me, but um, I was always just able to stick to the facts. And the fact was, we had to. We hacked, we hacked the organization. And uh, the fact was we had the evidence and we um, you know, could show in our, our analysis, uh, not only was there SQL injection, but there, we were able to um, download uh, you know, 14,377 uh, records that contain social security numbers and credit card numbers and plain text. And um, the, the value of, uh, of those would be approximately this on like the black market if an attacker were gonna sell them. So they're pretty motivated to, to steal those. And um, the cost of a data breach, according to like Ponymon Institute would be, you know, about uh, $278 per record and uh, times 14,000, you know, we're looking at a pretty hefty uh, multi-million dollar breach here. Yeah, they when you start speaking the numbers and, and the funny thing is, uh, I recently went to work for a, a company and, you know, working with marketing folks and in the sales teams, you kind of get to see what those people feel like when you're not, we're not translating well enough, because when people are talking about KPIs and MQLs and when I hear SQL, I'm thinking SQL and, you know, Microsoft SQL or some type of uh, structured query language database, but you kind of get to, you know, it's kindly got to see recently what the people are are thinking what's running through their heads when they're hearing all this alphabet soup of acronyms coming from us that they're not that technical or un really uh, understand what we're doing. Yeah. They, they, at the end of the day, like they have a business to run and um, getting a, I think the good news is, is, you know, getting a penetration test uh, is requirement now and for running most businesses, uh, especially if they deal with uh, sensitive PHI or PII or financial data, um, and on each each industry has its its regulations. And I'm I'm really happy to see that the industry has also evolved into there's a lot more people that actually do just care from a due due diligence perspective, and they they understand cyber attacks are a very real threat, and it's probably not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, and um, that they're going to have to deal with some incident or breach, and they want to bring on experts that can really help them get prepared for that. And, and um, the other thing that I'm excited for is I think that uh, there is uh, a lot of folks out there that want access to this type of expertise 
um, more frequently than once a year, uh, which is uh, unfortunately uh, what a lot of the requirements uh, uh, state um, for now. I think there's already starting to be some requirements and, and compliances that, uh, like I think the um, NYDFS, uh, like there's starting to add some language that if you need to, uh, or if you're going to do business in, with a financial institution that in the state of New York, um, which uh, at that point pretty much includes every financial institution, uh, you have to do continuous uh, testing. And uh, I think that this is um, where we'll see the direction go for this industry. Doing um, testing once a year just doesn't cut it because attackers don't just come at you once a year. They are coming at you continuously. There, there are opportunistic attackers scanning the entire internet every day and they don't necessarily care what your organization uh, does uh, or, or who you are, but they they will hunt for every instance of a vulnerability of the latest missing patch, latest CVE, or maybe they're looking for every instance of a sensitive info leak or misconfiguration. And um, they will just, you know, compromise that system. They will breach that system because they can maybe sell it to a ransomware gang as an initial access vector. Uh, maybe they can, um, add it to their botnet. Maybe they can use it for cryptocurrency mining. Maybe they uh, just put it, uh, um, you know, um, save it for a rainy day and go look and see where they're at later and, and continue to land and expand and do post-exploitation uh, until they get to more sensitive data uh, if there wasn't something juicy on that first box that they compromised. So I think all of that um, uh, alone is, is enough for us to try to explore ways to do opportunistic uh, uh, um, style analysis uh, on a regular basis and try to find the um, any indicators of exposure or indicators of vulnerability that are exposed on the attack surface of an organization and um, then go see if those are exploitable and um, uh, help help organizations prioritize fixing them yeah and it seems you know it's even a bigger risk when you really think about over the past five or 10 years, at least the past five years, the threat actors have really figured out how to monetize these attacks. And one time it was really kind of hard for them to make money, but they really found it, found it, figured out how to do it, either selling the data or, you know, using ransomware or something else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, a lot of that stuff has been pretty game changer in, in just how much more money attackers can earn. And, and there are a lot of criminals that are very motivated by money. So, uh, uh, that just, I think, increases the stakes for uh, the organizations that need to protect themselves. And, and it, it probably shifts more, uh, shifts how much they should be spending to, to protect themselves. Um, and so I think that we will see continued investment and increases in investment, um, perhaps even while the, the economy uh, and, and is on um, a downturn, compared to, to the last uh, few years before the, the pandemic. But uh, because I, I, I tend to notice a trend that um, organizations want to protect what they have whenever they do see risk just in, in, in the, the ecosystem and the global economy. I, I think they, they maybe invest more in um, insecurity and, and managing risk uh, than they do in growing and innovation and hiring and things like that.
Yes. Great thoughts there. Uh, we're getting down kind of towards the end of the show. So, uh, I wanted to see what would your advice be for someone that wanted to get into pen testing, someone that wanted to be a pen tester, what would be your path for recommended path for someone wanting to, to get into the industry? I'd say at this point, um, find someone that you admire, uh, find someone that, um, you look up to in the industry. Um, maybe you, uh, read something they wrote, maybe you watched one of their conference talks, maybe you, um, use, uh, used a tool, an open source tool that they've made, um, and reach out to that person. Uh, don't be shy, uh, send them a really polite message, a really, a, a really well thought out message. Um, you know, thank them for their, their impact on, on you. And, um, ask them a question, just ask them maybe some questions that uh, you, you, you'd like to, to learn more about from them. And I have a feeling that when they have time, they will get back to you and they will, they will answer you. And um, if you wanna get into penetration testing, absolutely do CTFs, absolutely do bug bounty. Um, I know you may think that there's a big hurdle and barrier of entry to maybe you're not understanding a lot of the terms that you're, you're reading about or uh, the techniques or the, the tools or the procedures that you're seeing other people use, uh, that just becomes your homework. That becomes your, your set of goals and that becomes your to-do list to go read up on those and, and practice and, and get hands-on. Um, don't, don't just read about it. You have to get hands-on. You have to get fingers on a keyboard. Um, and I would say learn as much as you can about these systems. I think that uh, maybe you're more interested in networking or maybe you're more interested in um, application development or maybe you're interested in how cloud systems work or maybe um, you, you really take a liking to um, elements like social engineering or uh, uh, there, there's a lot uh, to learn in this industry and um, figure out what you're most passionate about. And, and you're allowed to change your mind on that. You can be passionate about one thing for a few months and then I, I change my mind all the time. I, I have like very <laughs> a variety of interests, but um, go and just get hands on with, with whatever you're most passionate about and, uh, and don't give up until you uh, have, uh, have achieved uh, the goals that you set out for yourself. Uh, great advice. Always like hearing people's advice on how to get into the industry and and uh, that's some pretty unique advice there so thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to to join me today uh absolutely i'm i'm really glad uh that we we're able to do this today and uh um i hope uh to keep uh keep chatting with you and for everyone out there we'll we'll share uh rob's twitter account so you can follow rob on twitter and and uh, connect with him so Thanks everyone for joining and we'll see you on the next episode. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hacker Factory podcast with Philip Wiley. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSBmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. 
You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.